Summer is here. Yesterday was the longest day of the year, and in my opinion, just a fitting omen to the longest season of the year. I used to love summer, but ever since moving to the surface of the sun, Fullerton, California, not so much anymore. Welcome back to The Fellowship, our audio-only version of the show. I'm Adam Hawk, joined as always by my trusty companion, CEO of The Nation Golf Company, Ryan Engel. Ryan, if you could freeze one day of weather for the rest of your life, what's the temperature and what's the sky look like? Well, it's been said that San Clemente, as you like to call it, there's a license plate frame that roams around this town that says uh, 72 degrees, San Clemente, California, best climate in the world. Big shout out to my friend Tyler Meadows, Mr. Red Meadows. He's been known for saying, Capo Beach, 69 degrees, just a little cooler than San Clemente. Love it. For me, if I could freeze 66 and cloudy for the rest of my life, I would take it. And I, this isn't a bit. I would take it. I'm from Seattle. A little cloud cover. You're from Poway, California. You moved to Seattle and you love the bit on taking the stance that you like cloudy weather. I don't think it's true. I don't think anyone believes you when you say it. Anything that you want to do, you can do in 66 degrees and cloudy. So I am loving the June gloom, but summer is here and the hot weather is on its way. In this episode, we're going to talk about Tom Watson's open letter to the PGA, what the merger of the PGA and Liv means to us, the two of us, Twilight Golf, the gimme putt, memes, and we'll even give you a lesson in etiquette. All right, so let's get to it, starting with Tom Watson's open letter to the PGA Tour, the board, and the commissioner, Jay Monahan. This letter was issued earlier this week, and it expresses Tom Watson's concerns with the merger of the PGA Tour and the Live Tour. I've taken the liberty to truncate it just a little bit, but most of his words are still in here. It's a little lengthy, but it's definitely worth hearing if you haven't read it already. Quote, I have a sense of the complexity of the issues which Jay Monahan is presently faced with as a leader. Unfortunately, in the wake of the recent news, I also understand the cries of hypocrisy. In my opinion, the communication has been mishandled and the process by which the tour agreed on a proposed partnership with the PIF was executed without due process. As a group of players and stakeholders who represent the face and the brands of the tour, what are our choices? The commissioner and the PGA Tour board on which five tour players sit are going to have to do a lot of firsthand explaining to comfortably coax acceptance with our membership on this partnership with the PIF. The tour's stakeholders, the players themselves, the broad span of global media, as well as the tournament sponsors and independent tour partners require an explanation of the benefits of forming this partnership. What does acceptance of this partnership mean to the tour? What do we get? What do we give up? Why was this deal done in such secrecy? And why wasn't each one of the players who sits on the tour's policy board included? It is my further understanding that many businesses, including some professional sports leagues, have strict guidelines on the percentage of investment they will accept from sovereign funds. Before this agreement is finalized, I wonder, does the PGA Tour have guidelines? Have we as a body defined an acceptable percentage of PIF funding in the proposed partnership? These questions are compounded by the hypocrisy in disregarding the moral issue, a position for which a long time was publicly highlighted by tour leadership. While it is accepted that players on all levels would value the opportunity to make more money, it has also been illustrated that not all of our players are in search of money at all cost. Those who stay true to the tour for whatever personal reason or position of moral conscience are more than a few outliers. 
And in a related question, what, if any, are the plans to reinstate tour players who defected and now want to return to the PGA Tour? I still await Saudi acknowledgement of their role in the attacks of 9-11, which resulted in the loss of the innocent lives of 3,000 of my fellow American citizens. That day forever among the darkest in our nation's history is sadly not alone among the human rights violations we have seen employed by Saudi Arabia. I ask the tour, how is a non-negotiable point for us one day, one we negotiate around the next? The reversal does appear to indicate a more desperate financial situation that has been previously revealed by the tour. Have funds been depleted to the point where the tour needs an unprecedented capital injection to remain solvent now or for the future? My overarching questions remain, is the PIF the only viable rescue from the tour's financial problems? We need clarity and we deserve full disclosure as to the financial health of the PGA Tour and the details of this proposed partnership. My loyalty to golf and this country live in the same place and have held equal and significant weight with me over my lifetime. Please educate me and others in a way that allows loyalty to both and in a way that makes it easy to look 9-11 families in the eye and ourselves in the mirror. I am very grateful for our country, its abundant opportunities, and the wonderful life made possible by the PGA Tour. Sincerely, Tom Watson. Engel, are you still with us? Yes, I am. Tom Watson, one of your all-time golf heroes. He's got a lot of questions. A lot of people have a lot of questions. Didn't expect this coming from Tom Watson. What are your thoughts? I think the big picture here is for months, there was clearly a battle between the two entities. And that battle had a specific jargon or language that was being used. And the biggest issue right now is that once we flipped this flapjack over in a blink of an eye, it was just pure hypocrisy. You can't say those things and have all these players go to bat with this stance that was very unified and use the language that history, tradition, we're unified, we're, we're a player-run organization. You say all this stuff, uh, the blood money, we, the human rights violations, all this crap. You, they, they took a huge stance, and they looked as though they were standing on a hill they were prepared to die on. And then all of a sudden, it's like, ah, hogwash. Let's partner up. Jay gets a raise. What the fuck is that? And nobody gets to hear about it. They just let a few of the top guys know that morning. That is probably one of the weirdest business transactions for a 501c I've ever heard in my life. And I think that they hit the panic button, that something happened. You know, we've heard rumors that in discovery and litigation, there's potential for their books being open to a certain extent. And maybe there was some shady kind of smoke and mirrors for the charitable aspect of the tour. I don't know. I've just heard the same rumors you have. But clearly, to switch gears that fast leads me to believe that something substantial happened. The herd was spooked. No one changes gears like that for for any reason other than something dramatic. It, this isn't about how bad Liv's graphics are or the 54 holes or... Greg Norman's a dick. This has nothing to do with any of that. This is just like, here's the the status quo of professional golf. has been there for, you know, wh whatever the history of it is. And these guys come in and do it. They fight back and forth. And all of a sudden, the powers that be just flip sides that fast. Very, very 
unorthodox, very strange. And I think Mr. Watson mentioning the meat and potatoes of the situation that, you know, these guys aren't good guys, you know, not to say that the U.S. and any other government is, you know, angels by any means, but, you know, you're talking about beheading people and shit still, you know, that's barbaric. You know, the 9-11 thing, that's a whole nother topic too, but, you know, he brings up points that are valid points that are valid points that the tour was using as their argument. You can't just be like, oh, here, we're going to do this. We're not going to tell you anything more about it. And uh, Jay's got his tummy ache and he's not showing up to the US Open. Come on, dude. This is way too fucking weird. Let's call a spade a spade here. There's definitely some bullshit. There's definitely a little little bit of a conspiracy shadow government going on with the PGA Tour. I was the first one to say, look, I don't love Liv, but I'm telling you that the PGA Tour ain't, ain't, ain't squeaky clean. And I called this out a long time ago. And uh, I think that they were in fear of getting exposed. And I think they're playing major cover-up damage control right now. So I love what Mr. Watson said. I know I went on a little rant there for you. We need to know more, dude. You can't parade around as a charitable organization and not pay taxes, rake in billions of dollars in TV money and pay your CEO $8 million a year and then sign with a Saudi fund overnight and not fucking answer some questions. Let us know what's going on here. Very strange. My main takeaway is that if Tom Watson has a million unanswered questions, which he laid out beautifully in his letter, is so does everyone else. And so I think it's really early to have a take on this merger if there are so many unanswered questions. We live in a time where everyone wants to rush in and say exactly what they think right when they hear something. But I do agree with you that there just hasn't been any answers to how something that was presented one way just completely flipped on its head and went the other way. And I think Tom Watson taking the time to sit down and write a letter of that length with so many questions in it, what he essentially did was he articulated the questions that everyone has. And what you found out is there are 800 to 1,000 words worth of questions, and we don't have answers to any of that. I will say this, that business and morals have never mixed. They never have. They never will. Sports is a business, and thus sports and morals don't mix. And I know that we all wish that wasn't true. And we like to pretend that we're watching our heroes play kids games in some kind of purity vacuum that provides us with an escape from real life. But that's not the case. And it never has been. And as soon as you start invoking morality into anything in your everyday life, you're opening yourself up to double standards. This podcast that we're doing right now is being recorded on a phone that was made in China. And that's a country with a laundry list of human rights violations. I drove into work today like you did. Uh, with a car powered by oil, wearing clothes that come from God knows where. I eat food that's made in unethical ways. My life, candidly, is a human rights violation. Not that I want it to be, but that's just the way that this world is set up. The TV shows I watch are written by writers who are on strike right now for better pay. The region I live in has the worst homelessness in the country, and we continually price out the middle class from affordable real estate, blah, blah, blah. The point is, As soon as you point a finger, you've got three pointing back at you. And I think that's what makes this situation so hard is when you want to take some moral high ground on Liv and the Saudis, you're opening yourself up and your everyday life and the way that you live it to have three of those fingers pointing right back at you. Spot on with everything you said. The reality is so many have said before me, there's levels to this shit. (laughs) Yeah, you know, sweatshops are bad, but beheading homosexuals and throwing them off buildings, that's kind of a different level. 
I'm not trying to get political here, but like those dudes are pretty, they're on a, a heightened level of this stuff. The main thing here for me, again, is the hypocrisy. And you can't say those things and then flip-flop and join up. And they're clearly hiding something. And I don't know if we'll ever find out, to be frank with you. you know, I cannot believe that Jay Monahan still has a fucking job. Right. He handled this whole thing so bad. When this whole thing first started happening and the press wars were going on, and I was like, look, dude, PJ Tour is crying a river right now. I don't buy it. In my lifetime, I've watched them destroy history and tradition in certain very historic tour stops. They've bent over to the highest bidder for years. And then as soon as they're threatened, they're like, oh, we're the history tradition guys. No, you weren't. You guys were selling out long time ago. Look at the Bob Hope Classic. You go back and watch some of these old tourneys from the 70s and 80s and stuff. You look at the tournaments now, looks like a fucking trade show on a golf course. Give me a break. Save your PowerPoint presentation for your next fucking board of governors meeting. I'm not buying it. Another thing that we talked about when this merger went down was what does it really mean for us, the amateur golfer? What does it mean for our community? Jack shit. What does it mean for the 99.99% of the people that make up this game? And you and I discussed there are 26 million of us in this country and there are just a couple of handful of tour pros. Pro golf. Cool story. You know, Sundays you're changing diapers. It's on in the background. Like, is it really that important? No. Are there certain tournaments that are super fun to be involved in and watch? Of course, you know, majors included. These guys are acting like this is it. And it's just not. What is it is showing up on Saturday morning when you got a hall pass, you're bright and early, you're kind of beating your own rules up a little bit, getting a Bloody Mary before you start. You're all giddy. You know, your buddy duffs it off the first tee. You're giggling, you're laughing, you're whatever. Four hours later, you get home, you're just, you got a headache. You want to like pass out, but your wife's like rake the leaves up, you know, like that's golf, dude. You know what I mean? That's fucking golf. And watching, watching a bunch of guys act like robots and marking two foot putts and fucking playing twosomes that take six hours. That's not golf. If you're betting and stuff, I get it. You got a little stake in the game. That's fun. Let's be honest. Golf is for us. And I quote, you come home with a headache. Your wife tells you to rake the leaves. That's golf. That's golf. Put that on a shirt. That's fucking relatable. Most pro golf is so incredibly boring. And there's a reason why you pull up YouTube right now and the videos that have the most traction, the most views, the most comments, the most likes, the most dislikes, the most interaction period are the ones showing common people playing matches or fucking up because that's relatable. That's the game. Golf is fucking hard. And the 0.01% of those guys who can shoot in the 60s week in and week out, they're biggest nerds on earth. You're kidding yourself that you really care that much about it. You really care more about that Saturday morning. I will uh, say this. Pat and Kazire, Joe Edder, not nerds. Everybody no, else. I'm not saying they all are. Right. But course. I mean, dude, you look at that field. We've, we've, how many turns have we been? We've been to a number of turns together. Yeah. And we always go to the range right before to see our boys because they're our boys. And, you know, you're looking around and more than three quarters of those guys out there, they're giving me anxiety. They're mm-hmm. so stiff. You know, yep. I don't like stiff golf. You know me, dude. Right. I cut it loose. And most, more often than not, most people like playing golf with me because I keep it light and have fun. And- now, I mentioned off the top, it is summer. Summer means twilight golf. 
And I started kind of fantasizing about some golden hour rounds. And then I thought to myself, who am I kidding? I'm not a Twilight golfer. I never have been. You're not 21 with a shitty job. Right, right. That you get off early and skip your community college course to go at two o'clock. When I was 21, we'd go down to Shore Cliffs every Friday at two o'clock and play Twilight golf and have a back nine blunt and try to do a beer hole in the back nine and get hammer smashed, you know? Yeah. But that's not real life. Twilight golf. Twilight golf is for kids. It's it's for kids. It's like trick cereal. Yeah. It's, it's a dream. It's for kids. I've quickly figured out I play anti-Twilight golf. My golf is like a secret CIA co-ops mission. Right. I leave before anyone wakes up, before the sun even wakes up. The whole entire point of my round of golf as a married man with kids is to get it done without anyone noticing. Yeah. I leave that. I tiptoe out of the house in pitch dark. Yeah. I go and I play. I'm done by 10 in the morning and I try to get back before people are awake. One of the main guys that I play with, Ryan Rozak, he's also a dad. And we, we have a rule, quite simply, that we will not have a tea time unless it's 730 in the morning or earlier. I can't remember the last time I teed off after 730 in the morning. Getting home in the middle of the afternoon half cocked, dead tired. Uh, when you have a family, it's just, it, it's, it's not going to do it. So for me to just have this epiphany this morning of, Oh my gosh, it's summer twilight golf. In what world am I teeing off at 3 PM getting back at 8 PM? No world. It, no world. It's just not going to happen. It's, it's never going to happen. I'd like to dream. Speaking of golf, I wanted to talk to you about the gimme putt. It just occurred to me recently that I'm against the gimme putt and Oh God! This this is just something that I, I recently thought of because I, I have been watching pro golf. I went to the U.S. Open, and I'm actually—you'll be proud of me—I'm sporting my lowest handicap of all time. I am now at twelve point nine. I'm a proud twelve point nine. Wow! But I'm wondering how accurate you're. A, you're an eighty-nine away from going right back to thirteen one. <laughs> I'm wondering how accurate <laughs> that handicap is and how much pride I can take in it. When I don't remember the last time I've had to make a three-footer. Now, I understand the argument that the gimme putt is a friendly maneuver. It keeps up pace of play. You're going to pick up stuff that people give you. But if you're not making three-footers, how accurate can that handicap be? It depends on the three-footer. Inside the leather is one thing. Three feet, that's... That's the meat on the bone. Yeah, but we've all been out there when you're given putts that you know in your head, wow, I don't know if I would have made that, but it goes down on the card as a made putt despite the fact that you didn't make it. And I was thinking to myself, what other game is there where you can just quit on something right before you finish and the result for quitting is advantageous? I mean, it just doesn't exist where it's like, hey, I know we teed off and we played approach shots and now we're on the green and you you nestled one up close don't worry about finishing it and by the way if you quit here you're going to get rewarded for it i see what you're trying to say but your argument's just flawed because the gimme putt is ingrained in the fabric of our game and a lot of people forget that golf was invented to play an opponent in match play it's this weird love affair with stroke play has, in my opinion, somewhat perverted the game. It's all about score and playing all 18 holes. And no, it's, you play hole for hole. You're playing a match against another guy. Your handicap's factored in. And the gimme is a strategic right to your playing competitor. There's a little bit of gamemanship strategy that comes with the gimme. If we're playing a, a, a match, and 
I'm having my run at you and I'm winning holes. For one, if if you're out of the hole already, it's like pick it up. For two, if my strategy is I'm going to give you everything from three feet, the first nine holes, and then when the pressure hits in that next big moment on the back nine, I'm going to make you putt that for the first time today because you won't have a chance to putt one with pressure. And then now that puts all the emphasis on that putt. That's the game within the game. So the gimme has an enormous value in the fabric of the game. It's useful, like you said at the top of the the topic here, as far as like pace of play and stuff. Like, you know, if you're playing a, a skins game and, you know, the guy's obviously there's a birdie in and whatever, and he's got like a three-footer for par after making a long lag putt and you're waiting for two other guys to putt, it's just like sweep it away. Putt doesn't mean shit. But if you're like in a stroke play tournament, then you have to put everything out anyway. So I really don't like that argument because it doesn't necessarily make sense for most situations in golf. Competitive golf is competitive golf and you're going to have to put out anyway, but you're not playing that. You're playing matches with your friends. So what you should be doing is you should be using the gimme correctly and using it in your advantage to make more games within the game. Throw a little money down at the beginning, and then now the gimme is more important on what you're trying to do and having fun with your friends because golf is an experience. It's not about what you fucking shot. I get that, and I don't disagree with the context of the gimme putt in match play, and I understand that competitive golf and going out on the weekends with your friends are two completely different things. What I'm saying is that let's say I'm chasing a number. For me, I would be chasing the number 79. I think I've broken 80 twice in my life. And let's say I'm chasing the number 79 and I card a 79, but I look back on that round and I go, wow, there were seven or eight instances in which I didn't finish the hole. I just picked up. And those putts can vary from six inches to. But that's on you. Yeah, it's on me. It's, it's 100% on me, but I think that it's now embedded in the fabric of the game that if you're close, pick it up for whatever reason. Your buddies give it to you, pace of play. You just don't want to hit it, so you take it. Are the scores that you're chasing yourself, not for competitive golf, not for match play with your buddies, but just the scores you're chasing yourself, are those valid if you didn't finish the holes that you were playing? That's my question. And So I think the gimme putt in that context of scores that you're chasing yourself and handicap numbers that you're reporting, I think it's a lie. It's a straight-up lie. You did not finish the hole. But again, your argument's flawed because if you're going to be Mr. Rules guy, stickler, and realistic handicap, then that's that's on you to tell your playing partners that like, no, I'm going to put these out or like, let's put them in from here, you know, wherever I'll put it. You picking it up is just part of the problem. I think the argument you're trying to make here is that the golf world has abused what the gimme is. And it's become common practice to abuse the gimme putt. And I would agree with that. But to be like, oh, no more gimmies. Come on, dude. You need to learn more about golf. Thank you. (laughs) I can teach you. I'm a golf coach. I want to talk about memes. I actually don't want to talk about memes. I just want to talk about the fact that uh, we do run a golf company called Nation Golf. We are on Instagram. Um, We have a decent following. For some reason, a lot of our followers, they deem it necessary to send us memes that they've seen. I have a question. Are these guys just like, are they just like selecting all and sending them to all their friends or like a group? Or is it just like, I don't know. 
No, I think that they see, they're they're singling us out and sending these. I, I think it's like, oh, hey, I I know Adam and Ryan, or know of them. I know Nation. I saw this funny thing. I want to send it to them. We we have these people. We all have these people in our lives that send us stuff on text messages. But now, like Instagram has kind of turned into the new text messaging <sighs> with DMs. It's just interesting because when have we ever put it out there or put off the vibe that we like and laugh at and share memes? We've never shared a meme. We've never made a meme. We make fun of meme culture. Even the word meme is lame. Yeah, and look, you want to make the one billionth joke about a cart girl and just kind of change the words around in the picture? By all means, do your thing. Just don't send it to us. Number one, we've seen it. We operate and unfortunately live in the vacuum that is golf Instagram. It is the most repetitive, tired, obnoxious, childish thing that is a part of our lives. And we never have forwarded or fostered this meme culture, yet we have followers, all of which we love and we appreciate the support, who think, wow, Nation Golf should see this. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. no, we shouldn't. We don't care. We don't like oh, it. Oh, just the, the art of the screenshot. Right. You just got to love it. You know, those two little buttons, what a wonderful tool to use. Um, big shout out to everyone who just reposts the same regurgitated memes out there. I know it's hard to use your index finger and your thumb at the same time to uh, screenshot something and go into photo editor and recrop it and then post it on your feed. What an incredible time to be alive. Please stop sending us memes. Yeah, just That's... come on, dude. We're we're adults here. Yeah. You want to send us something? Send us a box of fucking cigars. How about that? There we go. You know? And we do have a lot of customers and friends and fans that do bring cigars and, God bless their and heart. whiskey to the office. We do love them. Final topic here. Let's give a lesson in etiquette. At Nation Golf, we do pride ourselves in presentation, etiquette, and being gentlemen and ladies of the game for the Nation ladies out there. So here's today's lesson in etiquette as we wrap up the podcast. I can't wait to hear this. I don't know what you wrote down. I don't know where we're going. You and I are big believers in this. Removing your hat when indoors. Oh, I'm not going to say who it was, but going back to we live in this golf space and whether it's brands or meme pages, we uh, see everyone's posts of what they're up to in the golf thing. And one of my buddies is a member at this club. I swear, whether you go to the club's site, any story or picture he posts, they're all just in the clubhouse at the dinner table. Every fucking guy on there has a ball cap on. What? What? <laughs> Come on, dude. Take your hat off. It's ridiculous. You see this rule of country clubs. You know about it when you're attending church, but why is it important? Well, first off, removing your hat is a sign of respect to women, to the national anthem, to the Pledge of Allegiance, to establishments you're visiting, to homes you're visiting, to anyone you have respect for. But this goes back to medieval times. It actually started when knights would remove their helmets to address the king and the queen. It is a sign of respect. Now, wearing a hat inside, as you mentioned, it's akin to wearing sunglasses inside. You can't call someone who wears sunglasses inside a douche if you're wearing a hat because the hat is a functional piece of attire. Its job is to block the sun. The hat are sunglasses for your head. <laughs> 
that that is perfectly said. Arnold Palmer said in 2008, quote, the neatly appointed golfer is like a businessman or someone headed to church. He gives the impression he thinks the course and the people there are special. And remember, guys, AP was a blue collar guy. Yes. He grew up on tractors. Yep. He got it. And he led our great game for a long time. Yes, he did. You want to remove the hat when you enter into a clubhouse or when you enter into a place of worship, a restaurant, someone else's home. You want to be a man. You want to be a gentleman. Just go to the men's room, run some water through your hair. You'll be better for it. At Nation Golf, we didn't write the rules. We just followed them. Okay, so before we sign off, fun fact for the viewers at home, being that this is an audio-only episode, I'm sitting here with my, what I'd like to call my best friend, Adam Hawk. We're in the office, and he is wearing a stupid LACC (laughs) US Open bucket hat indoors. What a Jay Monahan fucking hypocrite this guy is. Take your goddamn hat off, Adam. This is a joke. I'm trying to run a business here. As I tell my kids... Do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> now, this, this, this hat is... Adam's wearing a cardigan sweater, a bucket hat, a white t-shirt, black shorts, and Fila slides. Worst outfit I've ever seen you wear. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Fellowship. Uh, share it with somebody. We got a lot of great feedback on the last episode that we did, and we're going to keep pumping these things out. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll see you next time. It's goth, people. Goth. <laughs>